Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem solving, decision making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar, graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can have either your entire organization take the program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Well, as we are about halfway through the year 2021, this has turned out to be somewhat the year of the rebuild, right? Because 2020, let's face it, was the year of destruction and maybe the shaking of the snow globe. Our guest today is Jeff Nishwitz. Now, he is the famous snow globe shaker. He's got a great analogy using the snow globe that really kind of brings to life what we all experienced in 2020. But more importantly, now, what do we do with all that? Jeff is a former attorney. He is a speaker. He's a consultant. He's a coach. And he provides lots and lots of great anecdotes for us today and some great valuable tips on how we can shake up our own leadership to adapt well to changing times. Jeff's going to actually be speaking at the Indiana Sherm here in August of 2021. I hope if you're going to that, you'll definitely check him out. But let's go ahead and hear what he has to say so you know what to do. Time to take the personal item, put it underneath that seat in front of you. Make sure your seatbelt is fastened tightly. We're about to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Jeff Nishwitz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mac. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, glad we could finally do this and connect. It's been great getting to know you and, uh, Talking to a fellow road warrior who had their wings clipped during COVID, and now we're uh, we're slowly getting nudged back into, I guess, life as we remember it before. Good or bad, it's coming back. But uh, we do want to talk today about, well, the title is Shaking Up Your Leadership. And uh, you have a really interesting analogy with a snow globe. We're going to get to that. But before we do, Jeff, I was wondering if you could share your journey with us. Tell us how you get started in this business and tell us more about what you do. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to tell you, Mac, that this was, uh, I got here because I had a great plan brilliantly executed. And, and that's what everybody wants to believe. But I will tell you that the, the real deep truth is that my journey to get here was much more like a car wreck. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was going down the highway at a high rate of speed, as I'm prone to do. Thought I was going in a intentional direction. Turns out I wasn't. And lost, you know, lost control. The car goes off the road, flips a few times, miraculously lands on its wheels, and the car was damaged, but drivable. And the driver, myself, was damaged as well. 
and had been through some really challenging times. And I, I just trusted enough to drive in that direction that was, that was pointed. And I'll come back to that moment because people hear that and say, Oh, come on, Jeff, it had to be more than that. And it really wasn't because I, I began my career, my life professionally as a lawyer. I I now call myself a fully recovered lawyer, uh, (laughs) probably because I've been out of practice more than I was in it. I practiced for 17 years including starting my own firm, and realized that I loved the business of law, which most lawyers don't. And I realized I really didn't like practicing law. And I made a first of a very significant decision, which is I can't do something I don't love, even though I'm great at it, even though I'm successful at it, even though it's it's uh, feeding me financially. And I said, I got to go. And that began the real journey. I had a I had a failed business after that. That's a lot of those bumps and bruises and even broken arms, broken limbs. Uh, I got into business development and found out I was really good at building relationships. And I but I always felt called to have my own business again. I just didn't know what it was. And I also kept telling myself, as some of your listeners might relate to, that I had to wait for the timing to be better. And what that really meant was money. And turns out that's not how the world works. Uh, the opportunities got presented to me and back to the, the, the crash and the vehicle uh, in the mid-2000s when I had a job, I was working for someone, I decided to write a book just because I always wanted to write a book. I didn't have a coaching business, a consulting business. I wasn't a speaker. I just wanted to write a book and I wrote a book on how to run law firms like a business. It didn't sell a lot of copies. But it was richly rewarding because a gentleman bought my book from Charleston, West Virginia, largest law firm in West Virginia, called me, said he loved the book, was trying to run his firm using it, and asked me the million-dollar question. He said, Jeff, do you do coaching? And I gave the right answer, which is yes. (laughs) And at that time, I didn't even know what we were going to do. And a month later, I had a six-month engagement to coach 13 of their lawyers. And I said, that's what I want to do. And that business has evolved. So if you fast forward now, I started this business in 2009. Now, 12 plus years later, I am still a speaker. Uh, Yes, despite COVID, still a speaker, a coach, uh, business and life coach sort of mixed together. And I facilitate companies and it's all about leadership now. It's about leadership. Uh, I don't do, I do some with law firms now. That's not my exclusive business, but I help businesses grow their people, their leaders and their culture with a really heavy emphasis on people first. I guess that's enough of the story for now, Mac. No, it's a great story. So you started out consulting and coaching law firms How different are law firms from other businesses in terms of their needs? Well, (laughs) that's a trick question, Mac, because you said their needs. Their needs are very similar, but their wants are different and their openness is different. I really did think in the beginning that I would become the coach and consultant of the law firms. And what I ran into was there were certainly law firms that were open to getting training and coaching. And they generally have resources to fund those, that training and coaching. But what I found is there was not as much of an openness to actually change. 
And often the work I did in law firms felt like check a box mm-hmm. and it just wasn't fulfilling. And, and also there was reluctance because one thing with the problem with lawyers and law firms is they think they're different. So they said, we don't need that because, you know, we're professionals. I've run into some of the same things with accountants, but when I run into the, you know, the business thinking law firms, they get it and they want to help grow their people, develop their people, actually talk about a culture. But you don't have a lot of law firms having strategic planning retreats to talk about their culture. And, you know, I find that non-professional organizations typically are more open to that conversation about how do we grow and develop our leaders? How do we build um, our culture? How do we connect better within our team? How do we build trust, which is a big piece of my work, trust building, trust assessment, et cetera. Why do you think it's different than their perspective on that, the professional I think there's two reasons. <laughs> uh, at the risk of offending anyone who's listening even more, I find that a lot in any of the professions because typically professionals are uh, extremely intelligent, highly educated, typically have advanced degrees or advanced time in school. Many of them have to take tests to be admitted into practice. You know, lawyers, accountants, um, you know, architects, engineers, even doctors. So what happens is they don't really see what they do as a business. They see it as this, this organism or a practice. I mean, what what do we say? Uh, Someone opened a physician opened a practice. Mm -hmm. They didn't open a business. Um, You know, we don't, um, we've got a different mindset and a big chunk of that is they say, well, this is just a collection of people practicing law, practicing accounting. And if you think that way, you're not really going to think about the role of people and developing your team or culture. Uh, And you're probably not even going to think about leadership because you just think of it in terms of, do we have enough clients? Do we, do we bill enough time? Do we generate enough revenue? In fact, I'll throw this in many professionals, not all, but many professionals don't even set goals for the organization. What they do is they look at their budget and say, how much money do we need to cover our nut and just allow for a little more for profit? Whereas most businesses are going to look at it and say, what can we achieve versus what do we have to achieve? Does that make sense? It does. I guess it makes me wonder what what working for one of these professional organizations would look like for the average support staff. Is that is that going to impact them the way maybe a practice that wants to operate like a real business would? What is the impact for the employees of not having the business perspective? Uh, it isn't. There is an impact. Uh, because when I do work with the professional services firms, typically uh, the the people in leadership will believe that things are going well with their people. And then they'll find out that's not really true, that people are just tolerating it, putting up with it. It's just a job to them. They're not, they're not particularly engaged. And I'll give you a quick back uh, example. A few years ago, I was, I was called in to do a retreat for an accounting firm. And they, but see, I will tell you this, they got it, Mac. They were saying, we've got some issues with our team. We don't think they're big issues, but we've got some issues. We just want to get better. So I applauded them for their openness. They were definitely business thinkers, but we got together and uh, at the break uh, in one of the sessions, one of the partners came up and said, Hey, the, the employees have made a request to meet with you alone. Hmm. Well, that's always <laughs> I know that's going to be interesting, right? And they said, are you okay with it? I said, I'm okay with it. Are you the partners okay with it? Now, the good news is they were. So we got in a room together and I asked them some basic questions. And one I said to them, which I often ask is, 
when you consider where you are, your priority in the firm with the leadership, the partners, the ownership of this firm, where does you as the team fit? Which comes first, clients or you? Mm-hmm. Well, they immediately said the clients. And just They got out before I finished the question. So I said, okay. So number two, and they said, well, team. And I said, well, wait a minute. I, mm-hmm. The question is for number two, is it client or team? And they said, oh, we get it. It's client. What's the third priority? Client or team? Client. Mm-hmm. Finally, we got to the fourth priority and they said, yeah, I guess now we're a priority. That stunned the partners, but the good news is they were open to hear it. And so we start, I started doing some work. It turned into a six-month consulting arrangement where I worked with them. I met with their team members. I set up structures so that people could start getting feedback. They, should, they could get some clarity on where they were heading. You know, they saw, they saw a path for themselves. All the things we typically like to see in a business. But I'll be honest, Mac, there's a lot of businesses, non-professionals, that aren't doing this. But their people started to see a path. They started to feel heard. Because they, because I listened to them and they started to see changes and things started to change. They started to say, well, there's an openness to this. And I'll tell you a really quick example. It was a, a micro thing, but a huge success. In the accounting firms, there's a process that they review all the returns. Someone more senior has to review the returns. And I asked the team, I said, how well are, is the firm doing it, giving you feedback? And they said, we get no feedback. But the partner said, well, no, you get feedback because when we review a return, there's a technology they use to give um, their feedback on the return. Mm-hmm. And the team said, but that's all we hear back from. And all it tells us is what we did wrong, like our mistakes. And so um, a simple change that happened is the managing partner the next, the next month or so was looking at a return and he did highlight some errors. But at the end, in the notes, he put to the person, let's call her Sarah. Hey, Sarah, this was a really complicated return. I think you did a great job on this. You navigated some tough issues. I'm really loving the work you're doing. Uh, There was a couple things to correct, but this was a great job on a very complex return. Hmm. It wasn't a big, grandiose compliment, but it was really nice. It blew her away. She'd worked there a long time and said, no one's ever told me things like that. So it was these little things that weren't happening. So imagine working in a place where you don't get feedback. You don't know what your future looks like. You don't hear when you do things well. And all you hear is when things don't go well, which is unfortunately like a lot of organizations, Mm -hmm. but in the professionals, if you're not looking at it at all, it's even worse typically. Well, in that example, then, I mean, did the level of customer service and satisfaction, did that increase when they went to this more open approach or Did the customers notice any difference? It did because what happened, not surprisingly, they thought they were doing pretty well, but what came out is a lot of gaps in how they serve their customers. They tended to be very reactive. They tended not to have systems in place to connect with their customers and communicate on a regular basis. Even though they were supposedly the priority, they weren't really treated that way. Well, when the people, the team members started feeling supported and valued, they started being more proactive in interacting with the customers because they had more to give now. They were giving, before they were giving so much to the firm, they didn't have a lot left for the clients. But when they got started getting filled up themselves by the firm, they had more positivity, more encouragement, more connection to offer to the clients. 
So there's always a ripple. See, that's the thing we forget. There's always a ripple. There's a ripple down and there's a ripple up. But there's there's never a neutral thing. There's nothing's neutral. It has a ripple up or down. So for this firm, was there a series of incidents that let them led them to you or how did that come about? Now, the only reason I'm asking that is, you know, how do you know your organization needs an intervention? And I don't know anything about this firm, whether they were really profitable. Well, what was it that drove them to you? Uh, in that case, they, I will tell you this. In that case, I've said it several times, they were very open to new ideas. In fact, I met them speaking at a conference of where the leaders of these of firms in the accounting industry meet to learn and learn how to grow their businesses and to improve things. So they were already of a growth mindset. What I really found fascinating about them is they didn't have a bunch of big issues, but they just felt, um, they felt it just didn't feel like it was humming the way they believed they could. They had also grown. And as they had grown, they had suffered some, you know, they were struggling with some growing pains with adding more people. Uh, and they were just, I guess they just, I would say this, and this is true of a lot of folks. And this is actually a lesson I learned when I left the practice of law. When I decided to quit practicing law, and I had a lot at risk, I mean, I had a firm with my name on it, a lot of success, I would have told you before that decision that I just wasn't thrilled with my work. I wouldn't have said I hated it. I would have told you, it's all right, you know, it's okay. And I just don't want to be okay. Okay is not good enough. But what I realized is when I made the decision to leave the practice, to leave my business, I actually realized that I did hate what I was doing. But what I've learned through that process is that whatever, when we think things are okay, they're actually worse because we don't want to acknowledge they're worse than okay because if so, we actually have to do something about it for most of it. I wasn't willing to settle for okay. And I've asked audiences for 12 years now, how long will you tolerate okay? And most people say forever. Most of us will tolerate okay our whole lives, our whole careers. So I would say they were okay but they were hearing things saying, let's take a look at it. And I will say this, what I really give them credit for is when they reached out to me, they said, Jeff, I think we've got some trust issues. And most organizations don't say that. Mm -hmm. What typically happens is they say, we've got these issues. We've got communication issues. We don't have team. We don't have, we need better teamwork. We need better communication. We need better accountability. We need people. They'll, <laughs> they'll say, we need people who are more committed. Well, when I hear that, I know there's an issue because there's a reason they're not committed. It's not because they're bad employees. People are generally great employees. They actually are. All these people are saying, I can't find good people. No, you're not building great people. You're not encouraging and empowering great people. Most of the people out there actually are great, but they need something and someone to trust and believe in and to commit to. So what I really applauded in this firm is they saw it as what it was, a trust issue. Most businesses that usually comes later. Once I get in there, I'll just say, look, I'm telling you what we're going to find. We're going to find some trust issues. You've either got situations where you're breaking trust regularly and don't realize it, or you never built the trust and you're not intentionally building the trust because trust is something that organizations love to assume is there. And it's nearly always the issue. Well, let's look at trust a little bit more because as companies are now starting to figure out their return to work, I think there was a fair amount that early in this pandemic just sort of made the blanket decision, well, we're going to go ahead and go uh, virtual. 
probably from here on out. And so I know because where I live down here in Tennessee, there's plenty of people moving out from Silicon Valley and New York and Chicago because their employer said, hey, we're going to let you go virtual. I suspect a lot of them are going to renege on that promise because I just think that it, you made it in haste. Now, what is that going to do to trust if you've sold your house in Silicon Valley and bought some little dumpy place out of here in Van Leer, Tennessee, blew your entire profit on this thing. And now your boss is saying, oh, we changed our mind. You got to come back to work. What's the fallout going to be? Well, that, that, you know, well, obviously the obvious um, fallout from that is going to be huge breaks in trust. Uh, but what I would say, Mac, is um, I, I would be surprised. I think there's going to be very few organizations that told people you're going to work remote forever and change their mind. I don't mm -hmm. think that's going to happen. But I think what is going to happen and is happening is that organizations are make, uh, making a number of mistakes around how they're bringing people back, if they're bringing back, what the arrangement is. And let me give you a range of examples. So one of my uh, coaching clients works for a very large organization, you know, multi-billion dollar organization, thousand of employees. Um, and they're still working remotely. They're going to come back to work in the fall. And apparently about a month ago, the CEO of the organization called in a meeting, called a meeting of all of his reports had not consulted with any of them, no input from anyone, and announces that in the fall, they, they and, and you'll chuckle at this, we're going, I've decided we're going to have a hybrid model. But his definition of hybrid was four days in the office, <laughs> one day at home. Now, is that technically hybrid? Yeah. <laughs> but would anybody else think that's hybrid? No. So... He decides four and one, that's a new language we have. We talk about the days in the office versus that. We have a four one workforce. He calls it hybrid. They're not buying it. He didn't get any input. He made that decision himself. And when he announced it, he told the group, we're not going to have a discussion of it. Hmm. Now, if you're on that team and that all filters down, everybody's going to hear about it. And if they don't hear about it, they're going to assume it. What do you trust that person more or less after that? Tons less, tons less, because that's somebody who is not willing to listen to anybody else. And that's a factor in trust. See, we think trust is about lying. Lying is the is one of the little ones. It's all these other things. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. Then there's another organization I know of. They've decided to go hybrid with a 3-2 model. Three days in the office, two days at home. They're getting a lot of pushback, and here's why. Most of their people who have worked now, by the way, I want to be clear. Some people are really struggling working remotely in part because they feel isolated. They're not mm -hmm. getting people connection, but as you probably know, Mac, a lot of people are loving it. Mm -hmm. So here's what their people were saying. We believe that we are as productive, if not more productive working from home. Number one, number two, my life is better. I don't have my commute. I get to spend more time with my family. My, my life and my relationships are better. And three, I'm happier. Mm -hmm. And yet the company is saying, we need people in the office because it's important to our culture. But wait a minute, what is your culture? What if your culture, what is your culture and what does it matter if your people are more productive or as productive? They're happier and have better lives. Isn't that what your culture is? Uh, so there's a disconnect. And I think this is, one of the trust issues at play here is leaders and organizations for 
at least the last 10 years have been quick to say, and they've been saying it publicly, uh, I'm not sure I trust my people to work from home. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them haven't said it, but that's what's going on. They said, no, no, it's not about trust. It's just about communication. No, the bottom line is you you don't trust. You want to control your people. Yes, there are some communication issues, but we can do things differently. What you're not comfortable with is changing what has been because you don't know how to lead in the new way. You know how to lead in the old way, and maybe you were effective or maybe you weren't. So we've got people saying, this is better for my life, but you're going to make me come back to work more. Why? Because of the culture for its teamwork? But tell me why. You're, those are labels. You're not giving me reasons. So I think the biggest thing that's happening and will happen, Mac, is people are not going to feel heard. I'm not saying, by the way, that everybody should go remote. That's not the point. But people are not feeling heard. And they're hearing platitudes as the reason to have to come back in the office. And people aren't buying it. And if the thing is, if I don't buy the story you're telling me, then I'm not going to trust you. Mm-hmm. If I don't feel heard, I'm not going to trust you. Those are the things that break trust all the time because one of the things that is the big, you know, the biggest trust breaker is we say one thing and do another. So when someone says we really care about our people and our people speak and I'm not going to listen, but I not only am not happy, but I don't trust you either. And I don't trust you care about me. And if I don't trust you care about me, then why should I care about you? Now this is just a job. Well, you mentioned culture a couple times, and one of the things I see, because I read a lot about this usually in the mornings, and you know, a lot of employees are, you know, you're, where you really get the gist of it is when you read the comments, if you're reading <laughs> something. And so, you know, the comments are like, yeah, the return to work, they say we want to, you know, it's we can't have a good culture without everybody there, but our culture is all bad anyway. I mean, are there companies that just flat out don't really identify a culture. They just assume our normal day-to-day operations is the culture because I have worked in some organizations where culture is a priority and they're, you know, they're uh, guiding principles, their values are, you know, on display. And the difference is employees can spit them out upon demand and they live by them. So I've seen both extremes, but I mean, is it really, is most of this shake up here with the the cultures that are not really defined. It's just now we're using that buzzword to say we need people here so we can maintain the culture. Because if that's the case, a lot of employees are not happy with whatever the culture is. Well, I think part of the problem is we're never, we're often not clear with what culture is or isn't. And a real quick example is <clears throat> you were talking about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, let me get a drink. People have always thrown around the word culture. Uh, About a year ago or so, I came upon a a new definition. I mean, it's one I created, which is to just recognize that every business has a culture, whether you planned it or not. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say we either have a uh, culture by default, which is many organizations, or we have a culture by design. And a culture by by design is one where we say, here's what our values are, because my short definition, and this is the real short definition of culture is, culture is values in action. It's Mm. three words. Values in action. Not values in talk, not a bunch of action, but values in action. Like when you said a moment ago, you know, some companies, their people can rattle off their values. I don't really care about that. What I want to know is if I say to people, what are the values and do you see that modeled every day? 
Because they may be able to say, well, we value, you know, caring for our people as a value. Well, do you see that every day? Oh, no, we don't see that at all. Mm. So you got a distrust issue. So I like, you know, unless a company started yesterday, it's got a culture, but it's probably by default. So the first shift is to go from default to um, design culture, figure out what those values are, and then start, I call it integrating. When people say, what does it mean to live your values? It means it's more than a platitude on the wall. It's more than a, it's more than a laminated card in your wallet or on the on your desk. It's that you make decisions with your values. You sit in a meeting to make a decision, and these are what I call some power questions, Mac. You ask questions like, which decision best aligns with our values? Or when mm-hmm. you make a decision, you look right at it and say, does this decision that we just made align with our values? Because if the answer is no, then why are we making that decision? And are we willing to be honest and say it doesn't align with our values? Are we telling the truth to ourselves? Because this is the biggest issue in terms of the breaking of the trust. You know, it is when people, you know, when I'll tell you a quick example of an exercise I do on trust at workshops, Mac, I do it virtually as well. It's a little more fun in person. I'll get people in groups and I'll say, look, I want you to make two lists. I want you to make a list of the things that the things that build trust. And I want you to make a list of the things that break trust. Mm hmm go. And I don't give them, I don't have to give them very much time. They all have things to write down. And then before we start sharing, I'll say, okay, stand up. If we're in person, stand up. If you started with the list of what breaks trust first, 98 plus percent of the time, that's who they stand up. All of them. Wow. You might get one. Why? Because that's the list they're most familiar with. The other reason is that that's the longer list because the build trust list is really short. The build trust list is this simple. Do what you say you're going to do in terms of honoring your commitments. Mm-hmm. Walk your talk. So don't say one thing and do another. If you say you value this, let me see it every day. And um, the third one is um, just listen. That's about it. Hmm. And here's the kicker, though. The other one is don't do all the stuff on the other list. <laughs> don't do the stuff on the other list, which is, you know, you don't do what you say you're going to do. You say one thing and do another. You talk behind my back. Um, you don't really listen. You're always telling me. You try and control me. You don't demonstrate trust towards me. There's all. Um, here's one. You're late for meetings. When people are late for meetings, people lose trust in them. Mm-hmm. Does anybody ever think about that? No, because oh, I'm just late. Yeah. But there's all these little micro things happen, but they have a big, they have a macro, a larger impact. And so I just say to organizations, what are your values and are you willing to put them in action? If you, if you are, now you're talking about a building a culture by design, not by just showing up and saying, well, this is our culture. And that's, that's where I struggle back. I'll close with this. When people say things like, well, it's important to our culture. Well, how is it important to your culture? Because most people can't answer that question because it's just a line. Mm -hmm. It's just a line. I guess it would be if you hadn't really done that culture by design. So the audience for our show is HR professionals. So Jeff, where would you see the HR professionals helping in establishing this culture by design? Do they have any impact on it or uh, is it really up to the senior folks? It's vital. And that's, that's my message to HR folks over the last couple of years Um, and, and at two levels. One is people tend to think about leadership as positions. And we sort of know it's not, 
but in our conversations, that's how we treat it. And, you know, someone may be an HR leader, have a leadership role, but there's always this leadership ahead of them or above them. And everybody says culture is a top-down thing. And that's a trap because if you believe that, now you got to wait for them. Hmm. You got to wait for them. And what I tell HR folks is, no, you have an opportunity to lead every day. You also have an opportunity to take the risks that are part of leadership, to start doing it a different way, to demonstrate and model because 95% of the things we're talking about they don't require anybody's approval, Mac. They don't require money. They're just different ways of interacting with your people. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. I know you speak a lot to the HR professionals, and, and that's the phrase they typically want to use, uh, call ourselves HR professionals. Mm-hmm. Well, I came up with a new version of that. Okay. Same initials, HRP, but it's human resuscitation professionals. Okay. And what I mean by that is I believe that the folks in HR have the opportunity to breathe life into the team, to breathe life into the culture. And I will tell you one of the things, and I'm sure you get this as well, when I speak to HR leader groups, I will regularly have people come up to me afterwards and say, Jeff, this is great stuff, but what if we do, what do we do if the problem is our senior leadership? Mm -hmm. I said, well, it's really simple. You have three choices. You can do nothing and stay. You can do nothing and leave, or you can choose to take the risk to try and change things. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee that you'll change things, but what I can guarantee is nothing's going to change unless you and a couple other folks, a small group of people are willing to be courageous and try to do it differently. Now, for example, one of the things that people are starving for is real authentic and, and helpful and supportive and caring feedback. And by the way, feedback is praise too. Mm-hmm. telling people how great they're doing and giving them feedback that's actually helpful, not judgmental. Most of the feedback that's given is critical and judgmental and it's not helpful. You know, the, the, the research says that people need three times the amount of praise as critical feedback. We're, be- we're lucky if we get one-to-one. <laughs> but why that's can't true. HR and the people that work with HR and the managers start giving their people feedback and just make time for them? And, and start really seeing them. Because when we give high quality feedback, a big part of the message is, I really care about your development. And I see you, what you're doing, because I'm paying attention. And that's why my feedback is going to be really specific and helpful. And I'm going to praise you like crazy. And I'm going to tell not only tell you how great you did, but I'm going to tell you why it was great and how it makes this team and organization better. I'm going to tell you every day how and why I believe in you. We can start doing that. HR can start doing it. We all can. So my message to HR leaders is don't wait for senior leadership. And the other message I give to HR leaders is this. So many complain to say, I want a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason HR leaders don't have a seat at the table is because the other leaders don't see your value. Let's just be honest. Mm-hmm. If they did, they'd have you at the table. So we need, as, as leaders in HR and everywhere else, need to demonstrate how we're adding value. And the best way to add value is not to talk about it, but to model it and show different results. So people start saying, what's going on with that group? Well, they've got this mentoring program or they started doing this new feedback concept. Earn a right, we earn a right at the table. And, and let's be, I'm going to be honest here. I don't, some of the listeners would stop listening right now. And let's just name the elephant in the room. A lot of this, lot of the senior leaders and leaders in HR are women. And those tables are led by men. And there's, it's certainly still a fact that many of those tables are not being open to women. And that's wrong. 
and the shift is still happening and there's a lot more to it. So I don't want to pretend that it's just not earning the right. There's a lot of biases in that, but I've always found if I want a seat at the table, I have to really claim it. I might have to knock down the door to get it, Mm -hmm. but that's a risk. Yeah, but well worth it. Well, Jeff, the last question I have for you has to do with your brand and this all this stuff about snow globes. So tell us about the snow globe shaking here. What is what is all that about? Well, I don't know how often this has happened for you, Mac, as a speaker, but four or five years ago, I was standing on a stage. It was actually in Raleigh, North Carolina. And while I was speaking, this idea popped in my head. And what I've learned to do is trust it. And I share the idea because it came to me. I didn't know what it was about. It was about snow globes, actually. And I didn't. I don't even think I owned a snow globe at the time. And what came out of me, which has evolved over the last few years, is this idea that snow globes exist for a single purpose. They actually don't exist to look nice, and they do, but they exist to be shaken. That's why they have liquid in them, and they have the snow or the crystals in there, right? Mm -hmm. That's why they, they exist for that. But the truth is, as I've learned in talking to people and asking questions, is people don't shake their snow globes because it's pretty enough as it is. Hmm. It serves well enough as a piece of art or something nice to look at. So we don't shake our snow globes. And my premise is the same thing is true in our lives, our relationships, and our leadership. We don't shake things up and we need to shake things up in order to change things. But here's the little trick. When I shake a snow globe, as soon as I stop shaking it, everything inside starts to settle. And that's what happens when we try and change things. That's when we're trying to be disruptive. We shake things up, which creates a lot of stress, but we don't really change anything. So we need to shake things up and we need to shift things in that process. Often it's shifting our perspective, certainly shifting our behaviors and our decision process, but we've got to shake and shift. And a lot of that is about doing it inside of ourselves. We have to shake up our thinking. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see things the way we've always seen them, manage the way we've always managed them, or we're going to tweak things. Sometimes we just got to fundamentally jar and shake things up, just like the snow globe. And so that's where it comes from. And, I, and I'll share this, Mac. Over the last year in talking about the snow globes, the biggest piece of feedback I've gotten is people saying, well, Jeff, you know what? I've been shaken up enough this year. I don't need any more shaking. Mm-hmm. To which I respond, with all due respect, wrong. <laughs> because what's happened is we have all been shaken externally. And when we are being shaken and disrupted externally, it's even more vital that we shake things up internally. Because otherwise, the visual I offer, Mac, is this. Imagine you're in a giant uh human-sized snow globe, and you're standing in there and the globe is being shaken around you, but you're going to try and hold firm. If you try and hold firm, you're going to get slammed against the walls. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is shake yourself inside that snow globe. And over the last year, we have required a lot of internal shaking in order to navigate the external shaking with less stress and more calm and more clarity. I will tell you, I'm a snow globe shaker, but the last year, 15 months, I've been shaking that thing more than ever Mm -hmm. because it's what required. And to make more shifts in how I see things and more shifts in how I make decisions and how I lead. And that is what we talked about in the very first few few questions, Mac, how leaders and organizations have not made those shifts. And we're doing business as usual as in, well, the pandemic's over, let's come back to the office. Mm -hmm. that's because we didn't shake enough. 
and we didn't listen enough. And that alone is one of those shakes to really listen to our people so they feel seen, heard, and valued because that's what engages people. That's what builds trust. That's what gets people inspired. And that's what gets people committed to achieving the objectives of that organization. It's great. Well, I will never look at a snow globe the same again, but I have to admit it was uh, it was quite a year of shaking. But I can say that in the long run, I guess for me personally, yeah, something good came of it because I had no choice but to shake along with it. <laughs> right. but, but Jeff, you obviously have a ton of experience and a lot to offer. So if someone's listening today and says, you know, I need that snow globe guy to come over here and help us out as we maybe try to build a culture, as we try to uh, figure out where trust issues are, how would the audience get a hold of you, Jeff? Well, thankfully, my name is really uniquely spelled. If you can spell my last name, you've nailed it, uh, which is Nishwitz, N-I-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z. So you can find me at my website, which is nishwitzgroup.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Jeff Nishwitz. Uh, I post a lot of content there, open conversations there. Uh, if you go to nishwitzgroup.com, you can sign up for the newsletter and hear what's going on every day. I do a, a daily video with a thought on leadership. So I'm easy to find as long as you can spell my name. Or yeah. and if you don't remember the name, just look up Snow Globe Shaker. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'll find I me. I bet you're the, the only the one. Yeah. I bet I am. And let's not forget, you are going to be at the Indiana State SHRM Conference coming up here, I guess, in July, right? I am. That is right. I will uh, hopefully be seeing you there, Mac. I think I'm I think I'm speaking there on August 3rd. Yeah, so it's August. Yeah, well, you wouldn't have seen me. I'd have been there in July wondering where everybody was at. So I guess I better <laughs> have Lisa check the calendar. Yeah, and so uh, you, you, we might both be there. We both look alike. A lot alike, except I think Jeff's a little bit taller than I am. So it might be the difference. And I won't have a snow globe in my jacket. So uh, I we'll will look. have a snow globe with <laughs> me. And in fact, I think my program is titled Snow Globe Leadership. Oh, fancy that. Well, good deal. Well, Jeff, listen, I really appreciate you taking time today to uh, listen to the train horn with me and uh, talk to our audience. And again, if you are interested in having Jeff come out and work with you, please look him up. Uh, he's the real deal and you'll really enjoy working with him. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure and a lot of fun, Mac. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.